If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts gummies, fruity splits. A uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet tarts. Dare to combine. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1845, Ireland's potato crop failed. And over the following years, this blight would return with devastating consequences for the country and its people. On today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're speaking about the Irish famine. I was joined by the historian Professor Christine Keneally, who answered your questions on the famine's causes, consequences and long-term legacy. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, we've had a lot of questions in from social media. We've had them in from Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And we've also got some of the things that people search for most on internet search engines all about the Irish famine. So to start us off with the very basics, let's go with one of the the most searched for terms. Unsurprisingly, it's what was the Irish famine? Okay, so that's a great question and it's a complicated question and a very complicated answer. Um, Not everyone even accepts the term Irish famine. Uh, In Ireland, where I was educated, it generally is called the Irish famine. I now live in America and 
most Irish Americans prefer to call the Great Hunger, but essentially we are talking about the same thing. And the Great Famine, the Great Hunger, was something that occurred in Ireland in the 1840s. It was triggered by a blight on the potato crop. At that stage, about 40% of the Irish people depended on potatoes. That's all they ate. It was their subsistence crop. So when blight came, it was quite serious. But the potato crop had failed a number of times before. What made this particular failure special, unique and so deadly was that this blight kept coming back and it came back for seven consecutive years. And so even though Ireland had suffered from famines before and indeed after 1852, the longevity of this made it particularly deadly. When we talk about the famine, we generally uh, date it from 1845 when the potato crop first failed, although excess mortality, the high levels of mortality, did not really begin until the end of 1846. And we generally say the famine ended in 1852 when the blight pretty well disappeared from Ireland. But in some ways, the famine never ended. So it's a false um, date, but you, we do need some closure to say when the Great Famine took place. So generally, we say 1845 to 1852. Great. That's a really, really succinct summary there. And we'll dig into some of the causes and the consequences in more detail in this conversation. But before we do, I just wanted to pick up on that point that you touched on there about terminology, because um, Islasharie on Instagram did ask, should we now refer to the famine as the Great Hunger? And I just would broaden that out to ask, you mentioned the differences between how it's referred to in America and how it's referred to in Ireland. Is that just a, a question of trend and taste or is there something more behind it? Yeah, I think it's both. And in America, people explain it to me that they don't like to use the word famine because famine implies an absolute shortage of food. And we know because of the blight, there was also a bad corn harvest, that there was a shortfall in food supply. So that's for sure. We also know that despite this, and this occurs in many famines, not just in Ireland, from 1845 onwards, massive amounts of food continue to be exported from Ireland. So some people say, well, if that food had been kept in Ireland, people would not have starved. Therefore, to say it's a famine is inappropriate. And I sort of understand that. But from my perspective as a historian, famine is more than just triggered by a potato blight disease. Famine is a process. And when I think about the Great Famine in Ireland, I think about it in terms of century of colonisation, in terms of a country where the poorest people were marginalised, dispossessed of the land, and therefore forced to depend on potatoes. So famine isn't just about immediate food shortages. Famine is a political process. So for me, I use famine, I use great hunger, I use them both. But I also see why some people feel very strongly about the term the famine. You mentioned earlier the importance of potatoes in the Irish diet at the time. And one of the questions we've had in um, from RL Cool Petit on Instagram was, how important was the potato in Ireland before the famine? And how did it get there in the first place? It's taking yeah. things back a slight while there. Yeah, it's a great question. Potatoes are not indigenous to Ireland. We think the first potatoes were brought to Ireland in the late 16th century, early 17th century. They were brought probably from Peru, perhaps via North America. Um, some people believe Sir Walter Raleigh, who had estates in Ireland, actually brought them to the country. 
And initially, potatoes came and they were the food of the middle classes. But as I said, you know, through centuries of colonization, many people in Ireland had been dispossessed of their land and had been forced to live on the poorest quality land. And what was very quickly apparent was that potatoes were very well suited to conditions in Ireland. They grew prolifically, even in the poorest of soil, and the Irish moderate climate was very well suited to their growth. So the poor people increasingly grew potatoes, and it was a good choice. It was very sensible because potatoes, especially if combined with milk, and that was the basic diet, potatoes and buttermilk, it's a highly nutritious diet. And what we think is that before the Great Famine, the Great Hunger, Irish people were probably the tallest people in Europe, which is not how we think about people about to undergo a famine. So potatoes made sense in the context of people who were marginalised, who often for Catholics, other lines of advancement were closed off. You may have heard of the penal laws, which for many uh, decades forbade Catholics from voting, from being members of parliament, from owning horses, from owning land, from being lawyers, from joining the army. So again, what do people do? How do they survive? And potatoes were in many ways a wonder crop. So it made absolute sense to grow potatoes. As we know, any crop can fail. And intermittently, potatoes did fail. Mm. You you said earlier that there had been potato blights earlier in Ireland. And that takes me to a question, which I think is really interesting, from Bagarap on Twitter, who asked, um, were other European countries also affected by the potato blight? Okay, yeah. So Bagarap, another great question. And although the potato had failed before, not by this particular form of disease, what made, again, um, the Great Famine so lethal was this was a new form of disease that appeared in America, it seems, in 1843. And then because of the developments in shipping, it actually travelled across to Europe. We think in guano in Mignol, and it appeared in parts of the continent, uh, Belgium, Germany, France, it came down to Kent um, in the south of England, and then late in the season of 1845, it came to Ireland. But what made the Irish situation unique and so vulnerable was that in no other country in Europe was there such a high dependence on potatoes. And that's why when the disease appeared in Ireland, people were very worried because of the high dependence of the poor people on this one crop. Mm. So Hannah-Laura Ridgely, she asked, where did the potato blight originate? You kind of covered that often that it may have come from America, but where did it first, uh, where did the problems first appear in Ireland? Yeah, so it was first, um, uh, it first appeared in Ireland, it's thought at the end of August, in actually in Dublin. And then the nature of this disease was quite amorphous because there's some sightings in early September in Fermanagh, which is you know, the northwest of the country. Ireland in 1845 was a bit like a chessboard, so it was very sporadic. Problem was, it was a new form of disease and nobody knew what the antidote to it was. In 1845, about 40% of the crop was wiped out because it came relatively late in the season. And people could cope. You, know, As I said, people had suffered um, intermittent food shortages before. And so people did what they usually did. If they had a pig, they'd slaughter it, they'd sell it, they'd pawn their fishing tackle, they'd pawn their wedding rings, feeling that the following year would be good, as was the tradition. Again, what made this uh, famine, this tragedy so awful 
was that in the following year, in 1846, the blight returned. But it was much more deadly, far more virulent. And in 1846, almost all of the potato crop was wiped out. Mm. So one of the main things that people search for about this subject is what caused the famine. And that's such a massive topic. You've covered off some of the scientific reasons there. But before we delve into it in in full detail, I kind of want to break that down a little bit. So before we look at what you described earlier as political circumstances that could have led to this, can you just um, clarify for us what the status of Ireland politically at this time was? Who was in charge and what was its status within within the United Kingdom? Yeah, yeah. And that's so important to understand because Ireland since the 12th century had been a colony of what was England, what became Britain. And the process of colonisation took a number of centuries. And generally historians agree that by the reign of Elizabeth I in the 16th century, all of Ireland had been colonised. The situation changes um, over the centuries But in 1800, because there'd been a rebellion in Ireland in 1798, Ireland lost its parliament in Dublin. And so after 1800, Ireland was governed directly from London. And this is really important because there's a spatial distance in terms of Ireland is 100, 300 miles away. But also there was an ideological difference in that Ireland was very much looked down on by people who were governing at the time in London. And even though there were a number of Irish MPs, they were very much in a minority at the time of the famine. So the policies that governed Ireland throughout the whole of the famine came from London and were mostly implemented by people who had very little sympathy, empathy or knowledge of Ireland. That leads us on to what perhaps is probably the most um, asked question. I'd say maybe 40% of the questions we had in in were along these lines. Um, But It's Me Akari put it as, was the famine essentially caused by the British government? So again, it's a complex question and certainly we cannot hold the British government responsible for the blight. The blight was an act of nature and unfortunately it came to Ireland for seven years. But what we can say is what could and should the political response have been? And as I said, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom at that stage. Ireland was governed by London and London was at the centre of the richest empire in the world. And that empire had multiple resources and those resources could have been deployed to Ireland to stop people starving. But for a complicated mixture of political, ideological, religious reasons, those resources were not used. So instead, the Irish people suffered very badly. And although a number of relief policies were introduced, in the most part, they were inappropriate and inadequate. And so the outcome is very basic. One million people died. Our next question from Conor McGree touches on some of those issues you mentioned there. And I wonder if you could dig into them a bit deeper. So he asks, was British aid a poorly executed plan or was there an intentional lack of help? Both. Um, There was some incompetence, there was some callousness, and there was some ideological restrictions. And if I can just go to one episode, which to me shows what the British government could have done 
Uh, when the potato crop failed for the second time, there was a new government. Um, Lord John Russell was then Premier, and he was very much in favour of cutting back spending, um, cheap government. He didn't want to spend too much. He also very much believed that if you gave too much relief, the problem would recur again and again. And we have the same ideological belief today when we talk about creating a culture of dependency. So in some ways, we haven't moved on that much. So in 1846, public works were introduced, which was a very harsh form um, of relief, a very harsh relief measure. People who wanted any basic wage had to work on these public works um, that were outdoor for 12 hours a day, six days a week for a minimum wage at a time when food prices were spiralling. Uh, the other inappropriate part of this measure was that these public works were to serve no purpose except to act as a test of destitution. So the phrase in Ireland is roads that lead nowhere, walls that surround nothing. And we know the winter of 1846-47 was particularly harsh. So people were working outdoors, doing hard physical labour, without shoes, without cloaks, without any warmth when they returned to their home. So people started to die in large numbers. So as a temporary relief measure, in the summer of 1847, the British government introduced soup kitchens. And this is for the first and only time the government provided direct relief in the form of food to the people. By July 1847, over 3 million people every day, and that is 40% of the population, were receiving food through the soup kitchens. Now, there were some problems associated with them, and soup is not an ideal food if you're hungry. But in that, those summer months, mortality was reduced. But what I would say when people ask that question, and it's a great question, is the soup kitchens prove that the British government had the logistic and the administrative ability to feed the people of Ireland. What they lacked was the political will to keep on doing it. And so at the end of summer 1847, the soup kitchens were closed. And again, that led to another period of mass mortality. You mentioned earlier ideology. And I wonder if you could just give us a sense of views of Ireland and Irish people back in in England and Westminster particularly. Yeah, um, Irish people were, in the phrase of the time, very much regarded as being undeserving of relief. And we know that because, again, most British people may know about the system of workhouses um, that were introduced in Britain at the time of Elizabeth I, but then um, they were there was a new so-called new poor law introduced in Britain in 1834. Um, if you know Charles Dickens and his um, book Oliver Twist, he wrote Oliver Twist to expose the cruelty of this system. So new poor law was introduced in England, Wales, and a, a different form of it in Scotland in the 1830s. At this point, it was decided that something should be done about Ireland because of the poverty in Ireland, and there was no system, no national system of poor relief in Ireland. So it was decided to introduce a poor law to Ireland, 1838, modelled on the English 1834 poor law. But if you look at the legislation, it's very, very clear that the poor of Ireland were to be treated much harsher than the poor of Britain. Um, so in Ireland, there was no right to relief. 
and an island relief could only be, be given within a workhouse. And after 1846, this became a massive problem because as the workhouses filled up, the Irish people had no right to relief. In England, they had both indoor and outdoor relief. And so they would have been fed, but this did not happen in Ireland. So I think even in terms of the legislation of the 1830s, you can see how the Irish poor were regarded as being less deserving than their counterparts in Britain. So we've spoken a lot about the inaction from the British government and you mentioned the soup kitchens, but C.E. Healy 92 on Instagram asked, how did the British government react? We've covered most of that off, but were there any instances of um, help and aid given by the British government? Yeah, um, again, the British government had responsibility for Ireland. So when um, the blight first appeared and it was seen how serious it was, public works were introduced. And in 1845, the Prime Minister was Sir Robert Peel. The problems he was facing were not minimal, but not as bad as they would become after 1846. And he introduced a series of relief measures that were really effective. So nobody dies 1845 to 1846. Problem is, 1846, not only does the blight come back and much more severely than it had been before, but there was a change of government. As I said, Lord John Russell became the new prime minister in the summer of 1846. And he came in as head of a minority government. He knew he'd be facing a general election. So the last thing he wanted to be seen was to be the party of high spending, especially high spending in Ireland. And so he introduced relief measures that actually were, as I said, ineffective. He introduced the public works as the main form of relief, which was just disastrous. People died in large numbers, uh, even as they worked on the public works. The wages were inadequate. The weather was against the people. It was just totally inappropriate. The soup kitchens, as I said, followed them and they were pretty effective, but they were only ever intended to be a short-term measure. In the autumn of 1847, the British government said that all relief for the famine needed to come from the Irish taxpayers themselves. Again, they suggested that at this stage, the famine was over. It was far from over. But again, going back to your earlier question, Ireland at this stage was part of the United Kingdom, part of the British Empire. Did that empire, did that government of Britain not have a responsibility to help the poor, the destitute of Ireland at their time of need? And to me, it's very clear that they had both a political and a moral responsibility, yet they chose not to honour it. Mm. While we're talking about the impact of Westminster policy, we have a question from Ken Murray, um, who got in touch on Twitter, and he asked what you can tell us about the role of the Corn Laws in the Irish famine. Oh, this, is, this is a very well-educated man. Um, the Corn Laws is something my students would sigh when I mentioned uh, sort of complicated legislation, uh, legislation being in place since the late 19th century, but was uh, reintroduced in a different form after 1815, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. But essentially what the Corn Laws said was that corn could not be imported into the United Kingdom unless home-produced corn had reached a certain price. Uh, 
And so it kept the price of corn, and by corn we mean wheat, barley, oats, etc., artificially high. And throughout the 1830s and 1840s, there was a massive movement, mostly in Britain, to repeal the corn laws. And when the blight first appeared in Ireland, 1845, Sir Robert Peel, the Prime Minister, did repeal the Corn Laws. So they were repealed 1846. Their impact was greater in Britain than in Ireland. Uh, In Britain, it was thought that at last it meant that cheap bread could be given to the poor of Britain. So in that sense, um, it was more important in Britain. But just to come back to the question of corn and the question of potatoes, because we always talk about potatoes in Ireland, and yes, they were important, but potatoes only accounted for about 20% of agricultural output before 1845. Ireland was, in fact, a country that was producing massive amounts of rich foodstuffs, including corn. But most of those rich foodstuffs were being exported to Britain to feed the industrial masses of Manchester, Preston, etc., etc. And it's estimated that before 1845, Ireland was exporting enough corn to Britain to feed two million people. So Ireland was sometimes described as the breadbasket of the United Kingdom. And again, this raises the question of why did a famine occur in the country that actually was producing a massive agricultural surplus? And it comes back to your very first question, this food was being exported. And again, why some people are reluctant to use the word famine. Mm. So we've touched on this throughout But I wonder just to, if we could return to it, one of the most searchful questions on this subject is what could have been done to prevent the famine? Yeah. Um, In any famine, what people need is food. And we looked at the example of the soup kitchens where people were fed. Um, Unfortunately, that was only in place for three to four months. When people undergo famine, again, Food is the essential, but as we know, the British government, they never felt thought about the other necessities that people needed, like medical aid, blankets, um, clean bedding, it was mostly straw, etc., etc. So the way in which the British government, even when they gave relief, they saw it in a very, very limited way. Um, just the workhouse system, which was in place since the 1830s, was totally inappropriate because, as I said, people, once the workhouse was full, they were not entitled to relief. Some boards of guardians wanted to feed people. They were um, told it was illegal. They weren't allowed to. So there just could have been, from the very beginning, more flexibility in the response of the British government. But in terms of giving them food, the British government were asked, would they... The phrase was close the ports to keep food in the country. They'd done that before. They refused to do that. In 1845, uh, various people in Ireland asked the British government, would they stop distillation? Um, The production of alcohol, of course, even Guinness was very important at the time. That had been done before, that distillation had been forbidden during periods of food shortages. Again, in 1845, the British government refused to do that. But all that grain that was being used to produce alcohol could have been used to feed the people. And the British government used the argument that the um, the invisible hand of the economy would rectify the marketplace. Of course, we know that's a totally false assumption and it didn't happen. But things could have been done, which had been done before and proved very, very effective. (laughs) 
Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And then it has another consequence because during COVID, we learned in America that the Navajo and the Hopi nations were suffering very badly. And suddenly, thousand donations poured into them. And it was from Irish people who said, this is a thank you for what you did during the Great Famine. So again, who would have known in 1847 that a spontaneous act of generosity would result in generosity 175 years later? Time flies. We blinked and 2024 is halfway over. What's something you've accomplished this year that you're proud of? Maybe you made it out of bed and to work every day. Or maybe you started shedding some old habits that were weighing you down. But even when you're making progress, life can feel like it's moving too fast. We can't slow time down, but we can give you a moment every week to hit pause, set intentions and reset. Therapy is a guaranteed time to check in on how you're feeling, what you want to do more of and what you want to change. Otherwise, it's easy to keep going through the motions without getting what you want out of life. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. You can start the sign-up process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Take a moment with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So obviously millions of people were affected by this. So every single case is going to be different and it will be impossible to generalize. But I wonder if you can give us a sense of what living through this time period was like for those who did, the families in Ireland um, who experienced this period of famine. Yeah. Firstly, I think it's important to realise that no part of Ireland escaped from the famine. People used to believe that the northeast of the country, which was predominantly Protestant, which was more industrialised, that they, that Protestants escaped from the ravages of the famine. But nobody did. We know in Belfast, in fact, some of the areas that suffered most were Protestant areas like um, Ballymacarrot. So no part of Ireland did escape. And so everybody would have felt the impact of the famine. 
as whole communities were wiped out, as people were walking throughout the country to get to the workhouses, to get to the public works, to get to the ports to emigrate. So these scenes would have been very much etched on people's minds. And one thing that we know is that even if people survived, they would have been very traumatised by what they had seen. Um, you probably have heard of the study of epigenetics, which looks at people's DNA makeup. And largely through the research of Una Walsh, we know that epigenetics was one of the consequences of the famine, that the trauma and the malnutrition was transgenerational and probably stayed in the DNA of Irish people for five generations. So it is still in the DNA of Irish people. So we know that people would have witnessed these traumas and probably, and some people wrote about it, would have had nightmares recreating this in their mind forever. And we also know um, from, again, looking at other situations where people were undergoing severe uh, malnutrition and famine, what could you have done to help your neighbour? I actually always ask my students about these moral dilemmas. If you were given a bit of food, would you keep it to yourself? Would you share it with your family? Would you share it with your friends? Would you give some to your dog that you love? What would you do when people are starving? And I think none of us really know the answers because it throws up so many dilemmas for people, especially, and I think we can relate to it now as we go through a pandemic. When is this trauma and suffering going to end? And nobody knew. After five years, it must have seemed like it would never, ever end. So again, what would you do to survive? Would you steal? Would you emigrate? Would you change your religion? I don't know. But having to make all those moral decisions and dilemmas must have been awful. And then we know people who survived may have suffered from survivor guilt. Could and should I have done more to help my family, my neighbours, my community? Again, it just must have uh, created terrible, terrible dilemmas for people who lived through it and who survived it. I think often because it's an agricultural problem, in people's minds, this is seen as a, a rural thing, but it did affect urban communities equally, you're suggesting. Absolutely. So we know people in Belfast and Dublin, they may have worked in small factories or in industry, but what did they eat? A lot of them ate potatoes. So again, their food stuff disappeared. And then people often would go from the countryside into the towns to get relief, to get work or to emigrate. And so this put tremendous pressure on the towns and the cities in Ireland. So let's talk about some of the the consequences alongside, as you say, community and nationwide trauma. How many people did die in the famine? Do we know? We don't know exactly how many people died. So as historians, we tend to round it up and we say at least one people one million people died, two million people emigrated. So in the space of six to ten years, Ireland lost 25% of her population, which by any standards is shocking. And that probably makes the Irish famine one of the most lethal famines in modern history in terms of overall population loss. What we, what we also know, and this makes the Ireland almost unique, is that the population never recovered. So in 1841, we think the population was about eight and a half million and growing. By 1851, it was about six and a half million. By 1901, it was about four and a half million. And today, the population of Ireland is about seven million. 
it's actually starting to grow. But even as we speak today, the population of Ireland is smaller than it was in 1845. And again, that is shocking for a modern democracy. So in terms of demography, in terms of population, the impact has been very long term. In terms of epigenetics, uh, we know the impact was long term. And then we know there was a tremendous loss of culture. We know many of the people who died or emigrated were often Irish speakers. So the Irish language was greatly diminished in its use. And then on the survivors of the famine, she talked about music, poetry and dancing died. Those things never returned as they had been. And again, people who lived through the famine talked about the quietness of the countryside, almost like a depression had fallen on Ireland in the decades after the famine. So many, many consequences. We do have some questions on those um, linguistic and cultural consequences, which I might turn to in a minute. But while we're talking about... Um, demography. Do we have any sense of the demographics of deaths? Do we know who um, was most likely to die from starvation? Yeah, very basically the poorest. If you were poor, you were more likely to die. Uh, We do have census figures from 1841 and 1851. They're not perfect, but they give a sense of the areas that suffered most. Um, Probably County Clare in the southwest of Ireland suffered most in terms of demographic loss. They suffered in some places a 50% fall in population. So again, you imagine how that changes the community. And this is common in any famine. Uh, Pregnant women, older people and children under eight are the most vulnerable. So again, by losing so many children, future generations were wiped out. So to turn to migration, um, Emmy Davis Barnier asks, can you tell us about Uh, migration and the movement of people as a result of the famine. And um, Maeve McRiordan asks, um, for people who migrated to other countries, where did they primarily go? Yeah, um, it sort of changes, but people who had the resources and the energy decided to leave Ireland and obviously a very hard choice. Most people who left during the famine and indeed the decades after chose to go to North America. Even though the journey was five to eight weeks, sometimes on board what were called coffin ships, it was not a pleasant experience. People preferred to undertake that long journey rather than go to Britain. In 1847, that's an unusual year because in 1847, the American authorities introduced various penalties on ships coming from Ireland. And so in 1847, we know in that year alone, more people actually went to Canada than to America. Some of them eventually came down to Canada. Uh, We know if they arrived in Canada, they had to dock at Grosile, which is a quarantine station, an island that had been set up in the 1830s as a quarantine station. We know between six and 7,000 famine emigrants are buried at Grosile. If they survived that, they went onwards to Montreal. We know that a number of religious orders of nuns in Montreal were so worried about the sickness of the people arriving in 1847. They got permission to set up fever sheds along the docks. And again, we suspect um, from the records of these incredible nuns that another five to 6,000 people were buried in Montreal. So even if people escaped from Ireland, it didn't mean they escaped from a famine death. It just meant they may have died overseas. 
Mm. S Redhead 94 asked, how were Irish emigrants who fled the famine received in Canada and the US? You mentioned their penalties put on Irish ships. Was that because there was a fear about the amount of um, Irish people coming over? Yeah. Um, and the fear was also that these Irish people were diseased. Well, it's in, you, indeed, some of them were. Um, wittingly, they were carriers of disease and being on crowded ships uh, in horrific conditions actually exacerbated those conditions and you bred disease. In Canada, it's generally assumed, and um, the historiography supports this, that Irish people were generally very well received. They were welcomed into the community. Um, I've talked about the nuns in Montreal who were incredible. In America, America was in the 1840s, 1850s, undergoing a period of nativism. And this is associated with a group you may have heard of called the Know Nothing Party, who was xenophobic, anti-Irish, anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant. So it was just unfortunate that at a time when massive numbers of Irish people were arriving in America, there was this nativism which made them feel very, very unwelcome. So it must have been, for early generations, it must have been incredibly challenging. And also the early emigrants who came, as I said, many were Irish speakers, many had no knowledge of anything except growing potatoes, and many of them were illiterate. So this whole movement was um, must have been so disorientating for them. And it's often said in America that it wasn't until the 1960s, with the arrival of John F. Kennedy, that Irish America finally felt it had arrived and had gained some sort of equality within America. Mm. And one more question I just wanted to put to you on migration, which I just thought was really interesting from KB the Ginger, was how could people afford to emigrate during the famine? Yeah, uh, it was a very price-sensitive um, movement. So people were trying to go where they got the cheapest furs, and that meant coming to Liverpool because Liverpool was the major transatlantic port. People would often walk to a port in Ireland, which weakened them, and then they would sail from that port over to Liverpool. They would be in Liverpool a day before they went onwards to Canada, to America, to wherever they were going. But people would sell whatever they had in order to emigrate. Some landlords in Ireland wanted to get rid of their tenants, so they would pay for their tenants to go. Uh, not always with great um, effect. We know uh, very well the example of Strokestown in County Roscommon. The landlord and his agent wanted to clear the estate of the poorest, so they paid for 1,490 emigrants to travel to Canada in 1847. Those emigrants, it was mostly children, families, walked along the canal 100 miles to Dublin. In Dublin, they boarded a number of ships and got to Liverpool. And in Liverpool, they then would split up and went on four different ships to Canada. And we know that about 400 of them died on the passage. So again, you, even if you were paid for to go, it didn't guarantee that you would survive. And we know that particular landlord, Dennis Mahon, was assassinated at the end of 1847. So, again, you know, various repercussions of what happened. Um, so people were just you know, were desperate to get out of Ireland and would do whatever they had, could do to raise that money. Well, we have some questions on various repercussions now. Rosie Renyard has asked a really intriguing question, which is, did any groups prosper from the famine? 
Yeah. Uh, there's some famine historians and they write in terms of the winners and the losers. These are not phrases I like, but what we know is that people can make profits during the famine. And we know that the corn merchants of both Ireland and Britain made massive amounts of profit because in any period of food shortage, Prices rise, and we know that they held on to supplies of food until prices were very, very high. Again, as people were starving, it seems unethical, but we know that massive amounts of profit were made by them. In local communities, people talk about the little shopkeepers who pretty well did the same, who raised prices, the pawnbrokers who took advantage of the people's poverty, uh, the landlords who used the vulnerability that was apparent during the famine to evict tenants that they'd wanted to get rid of for years or to force them to emigrate so that they would be gone forever. So people did make profit and they used the famine as an opportunity to do things that they'd wanted to do beforehand anyway. Something that you mentioned earlier was the impact on language. And John J. Patterson Six has asked about that specifically. What was the impact of the famine on Irish speakers and why did it seemingly cause a big drop in Irish speaking? Yeah. So the Irish language had been in decline for centuries. And <clears throat> by the 19th century, it was mostly the poor people who spoke it. Even Daniel O'Connell, the great liberator of Ireland, who was a fluent Irish speaker, said to the Irish people, no, you must learn English because English is the language of the modern world. And so when the famine came, a lot of the people who died, we have said, were the poorest people who were the native Irish speakers. People who emigrated might have spoken both languages, but when they got to their new countries, if it was Canada, America or Britain, the language they needed was English. And generations after who emigrated knew that in order to succeed, they needed to speak English. So again, the Irish language was greatly weakened by that. And it wasn't until the end of the 19th century there was a great cultural revival and part of that revival process was a re-engagement with the Irish language. That leads us on to the next couple of questions. One is from Kat Johnson who asks, what role did the famine play in shaping Irish identity? And Rosie Renyard has another question, which is, can the famine be seen as a turning point in the development of nationalism in Ireland in terms of um, the way it may have changed Anglo-Irish relations particularly? Yeah, the identity question is really interesting because it just seems that Irish people to this day have such a strong memory of the famine, whether they're in Ireland or overseas. And in America, people often say, it really is part of the foundation story of Irish America. It seems that people have a memory of the famine and want to know about the famine and don't want to forget for different reasons, but they don't want to forget. And the question about Irish nationalism, it really does change nationalism because in Ireland, there'd been very attempts to, various attempts to win independence. 1798, there was a very small and successful rising in July 1848. But what happens is as a result of emigration, Irish nationalism is no longer confined to the island of Ireland. It's taken overseas and it's taken overseas mostly to North America. And mostly it is kept alive there by people who believe that their exile is because of inappropriate British government policies. So they are very angry and they are determined that Ireland should become independent. 
And so in the wake of the famine, there is the next wave of physical force nationalism, which is the Fenians. Um, they had a rise in 1867. It was unsuccessful. But their desire for independence does not go away and is rekindled in 1916. So the role of America in subsequent um, decades of nationalism is very, very important. This next question may be impossible to answer, but I'll put it to you and we'll see what you think. Um, Bill Dozer on Instagram has asked, what was the most unexpected consequence of the famine? Ooh, Bill. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a really great question. Just one of the unexpected aspects and one of the most uplifting aspects is the number of people who actually wanted to help the Irish poor, even though they had no direct connection with them. And one of the stories that is, I suppose, very famous now was the donation of the Choctaw Nation, people who themselves in the 1830s had been dispossessed of their land, forced to go on the Trail of Tears, had suffered as a result of it. And even though they had so little, when they heard of the suffering in Ireland, they wanted to do something. And we know they sent $174 to Ireland, which is incredible. We know a number of other native groups, the Cherokees also gave, etc. Their story is less well known. But I suppose one of the most unexpected outcomes is that that story was not forgotten. And it was first made known in the 1990s by Don Mullen, who organised for a plaque to be put up in City Hall in Dublin. And then with the 150th anniversary, the story became told and retold. And it's become very much embedded now in Irish culture. There's a beautiful memorial to the Choctaw donation in Middleton, in Cork. And more recently, the Irish government has given scholarships to young people in the Choctaw nation. So who would have known in 1847 that this act of spontaneous generosity by the Choctaw nation would lead to scholarships in Ireland? So to me, it's one of the most uplifting and maybe one of the most unexpected consequences and then it has another consequence, because during COVID, we learned in America that the Navajo and the Hopi nations were suffering very badly. And suddenly, thousand donations poured into them. And it was from Irish people who said, this is a thank you for what you did during the Great Famine. So again, who would have known in 1847 that a spontaneous act of generosity would result in generosity 175 years later? Yeah. It's a, it's a nice kind of um, glimmer of hope and humanity there. Talking about the, the legacy, um, Lilithgow on Instagram has asked what the artistic legacy of the famine ha um, has been. I know that you've said that it had a, a devastating impact on Ireland's art, but was there anything um, to come out of it that was more fruitful in terms of art? Yeah. So at the time, and art historians could answer this better, um, something like famine, poverty, were not really seen as um, suitable subjects for high art. And we know photography was in its infancy, so we have no photographs of the Great Famine. But one or two artists did tackle this issue and we're very grateful to them. So James Mahoney, who was um, from Cork and he was the illustrator with the Illustrated London News in 1847, travelled to Skibbereen and the areas around that and provided some very powerful woodcuts. In 1849, when County Clare was suffering so badly, he again travelled and created some really memorable, haunting images of real people who were suffering during the famine. 
Another aspect of memorialization that we've had a question in on um, is education. So Niall Smiley Oman asks, um, why is the famine not taught more in British schools? I don't I don't personally know how much it is taught at the moment, so maybe you could clarify that for us. Um, Ireland was part of the United Kingdom at the time. And I guess I'd just broaden that out to a question about how well you you think people are educated about it these days and how it's memorialised. Yeah, there's certainly been a massive change since 1995. So when I was a student in Dublin in the 1980s, the famine was not taught either at school level or at um, university level. There's a lot of complicated reasons in the immediate aftermath of the famine. Uh, People were silent, they were traumatised, and then maybe later on people were ashamed. And then, you know, the political situation changed. So um, in the 1970s and 80s, as you know, there was a conflict in Northern Ireland and people were very reluctant to engage with some very political aspects of Ireland's past. So there were a number of silences for a number of complicated reasons. It really changes in 1995 um, in Ireland. The economy was doing well. There was a whole cultural awakening. There was Riverdance, Seamus Heaney, etc. And there was a peace process. And so I think people felt at liberty that they could talk about this horror. And in 1997, uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair actually issued what amounted to an apology for the famine. And again, this was very cathartic, very healing, and in many ways a brave thing for him to do. Uh, We just learned this year he knew nothing about it. In fact, it was his assistants who wrote it, but it doesn't matter. It was a very... um, again, brave thing to do in the context of 1997. And it really showed that there was a new maturity about understanding the famine. The famine is taught now in some American schools, it's taught in Irish schools, and it really isn't taught too much in British schools. Now, I haven't lived in Britain for a few years, but when I left, it certainly wasn't. And I think that's in general so little Irish history is taught in British schools, which seems a shame given that Northern Ireland is still part of the United Kingdom, uh, given that all of Ireland was, until 100 years ago, part of the United Kingdom, and given that the two histories are so closely intertwined. uh, We know through emigration as well as anything else, there's a lot of Irish people in Britain. So I would say it should be taught and you know, just learning more about our history has to be a positive thing. So I hope as we go forward, more Irish history is taught. I hope the famine is taught because the lessons from the famine are so relevant to what we are seeing in the world today in terms of food security, refugee crises, bad government policies um, in the face of pandemics. So even though the Irish famine for Irish people is almost a sacred memory, I think it holds very important life lessons to this day. That was Christine Keneally. Christine is a professor in history at Quinnipiac University and the author of several books on the Irish famine and Irish history, including The Great Irish Famine, Impact, Ideology and Rebellion, and A New History of Ireland. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.